James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As you can see, tonight's passage is going to be a little bit fun, isn't it? Not the kind of messages we hear a lot today where the pastor starts off and says, you adulterous people. But like we said in our prayer time, when God says things to us that hurt, he's doing it because he loves us. And so we want to tonight ask God to kind of give us the ability to receive this message, because this is actually important for all of us, depending no matter what your condition is spiritually. As I put in my notes, there's a lot more here than many realize. And in these verses, we see a key to releasing God's grace in our lives. God is a gracious God who desires to bless us with himself and with all that comes with him. Love, joy, peace, etc. All those things we'd love. But God only gives his grace to the humble. Look at verse 6 again. But God gives more grace. Therefore, God, it says God opposes who? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is actually what humility looks like and being able to receive the grace of God. God is a gracious God. Would you not agree that God loves the world? That he sent his only son to die for the world before the world even knew they needed a savior. Would you not agree that God through Jesus and Jesus who is God was saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing while he was being mocked and ridiculed. He's a gracious God, full of mercy, full of love. And he has grace that he's offered, but he only gives it to those who are humble enough to say, I need it. And that's where we're going to be going tonight is looking at the fact that we only can receive God's grace, whether we're lost or whether we're saved, by humbling ourselves and saying, I need it. We need His grace for salvation. We need His grace daily to live the Christian life. And that's why He's made our walk with Him this way. He's made it so that the world can choose whether they're going to believe in Him or not. And for those of us who do believe in Him and who have received His forgiveness... He lets us on a daily basis live a life of choosing whether or not we're going to let him be in control. Whether or not we live in his grace, with his power and his mercy. Or are we going to do things on our own? So what I want to do real quick is take you back and have you take a look at how God dealt with the nation of Israel. Just a real quick little thing to show you how God's grace works so that we can see how he deals with us. Go to um, Matthew chapter 23. And look at verses 37 through 39. Everybody's a little subdued tonight. I'm sure it's this lesson on adulterous people that gets you really excited. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, and by the way, this is at the end of him 
his triumphal entry. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He says, I wanted to. I wanted to, but you weren't willing. I wanted to gather you. I wanted to just take care of you and nurture you and bless you and protect you and provide for you. I wanted to, but you weren't willing. Go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14. All the way to verse 23. And Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. Talking about what God's going to do in the last days for the nation of Israel. Therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor. That's going to be important later on. The valley of Achor a door of hope. And there shall... There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and on the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I'll answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I'll have no mercy, sorry, have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Notice that God says in the last days, he's going to take Israel, the nation of Israel, and allure them into the wilderness. Remember, they've already been through the wilderness at this point when this prophecy was written by Hosea. <clears throat> they've already gone through the wilderness wandering. They already were brought into the promised land, but because of their disobedience, they were removed from it for a period and then brought back after the Babylonian captivity. And then, of course, we saw Jesus come on the scene and offer salvation and the kingdom to them. But again, they rejected it and rejected him and his offer of grace. They didn't think they needed it. They thought they were righteous. They were keeping the law. They were doing pretty good compared to everybody else in the world. And they didn't acknowledge their need of a savior or why he had come. And he said, I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. But the prophecy also said, though, that he's going to allow them, the nation of Israel, to go through time of suffering and trial. <clears throat> but in the very last days, he's going to fulfill all of his promises. And the nation of Israel, at the midpoint of the tribulation, if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God, going to go after the Jews, and many are going to run into the wilderness for three and a half years where they'll be protected. And during that time, their eyes are going to be opened, and they're going to say, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. He was the one who was, who was put to death for our sins. And they're going to look on him whom they've pierced, and they're going to grieve and mourn. And he's going to forgive them and lead them back into the land and bless them for eternity. His grace is still there, even though it was rejected. But they have to humble themselves to receive it. And the same thing for us. But there's something here that you might have missed Look at what he says in verse, uh, 14, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, if I were to ask most of you, what's the valley of Achor? You probably wouldn't know. Well, go with me to the book of Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 7. <clears throat> the Josh, Joshua chapter 7 is where we're introduced to this valley of Achor. Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. And then we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. Joshua 7, 10 through 13, and then 22 through 26. Now the nation of Israel, was, had they just defeated Jericho, they were told not to take any of the prized possessions, and everything was to be devoted to the Lord. But this man, Achan, stole some things and hid them in his tent with his family's knowledge. And then they go to fight, defeat their next enemy, which is way smaller than Jericho, little city of Ai, and they get defeated and Joshua and the leaders of Israel are all falling on their faces before God, saying, What's going on? In verse 10, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. I'll be with you no more until you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Jump over to verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Valley of Trouble. God says, I'm going to take the Valley of Achor and turn it into a door of hope. Well, how does that apply to us? What's this? What's he talking about? Well, God's wrath toward Achan's sin was dealt with severely, was it not? Oh, but what did God do with his wrath toward man's sin at the cross? It was dealt with. It was dealt with there. God took his wrath for all sin and poured it out on Jesus, his own son. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, don't miss that word might. Because the, 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 the sin has been dealt with. But if you don't receive it, if you don't humble yourself and say, I need it, I need Jesus' forgiveness, I need Jesus' cleansing, I need what Jesus did by taking the wrath of God for my sin to be in my place. If you don't think you need it, his wrath is still on you. You're still headed for his wrath. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, we, we receive by faith, this forgiveness of sins through what Jesus did and how God poured out his wrath on man's sin on Jesus. But you must receive it by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. In Romans 3, verses 19 through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was also to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, I want you to see what's going on here so that you can get ready to receive what God has for us from the book of James. He is a gracious God and he's willing to forgive and wants to forgive. He wants to extend mercy and not give us what we deserve. He wants to extend his grace and give us what we don't deserve. Yet he only gives his grace to who? The humble. Those who know they need it. Those who ask for it. You must receive this gift of salvation by faith or God's wrath for your sins still stands. Jump back in chapter 2 of Romans. You're in chapter 3. Go to chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. By the way, let me just stop real quick and just say, are we not living in a time right now when everybody in the world really, really, really likes pointing out everybody else's sin? I mean, they want to go back and pull out video of things you did in college and all this stuff so that you're not qualified to serve in, in, in the government and all this stuff. And the more I keep seeing the world go, look what they did here. Look what they did back then. The more I keep saying to the world in my mind, you don't really want to go there, do you? Do you really want to go down that road of pointing out everybody's faults? Because the Bible says the measure in which you judge, it will be held against you and you will be judged in the same way. Folks, there's a day coming when God, who knows every little thing, will 
hold everybody accountable for every little thing they've done. Do you really want to go there? Wouldn't you rather say, God, I wish you would erase those memories. I wish you would erase those videos of the things I did in college. I wish you would, would just make them go away. And that's the good news of Jesus. They say if it's pointing a finger, there's four coming back at you. That's true, for sure. And that's, we have to acknowledge that and acknowledge we're all guilty of this. We all need a Savior. We'll go again to chapter 2 again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, don't stop reading there. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I don't think we even have a clue to what the wrath of God looks like. I don't think any of us would make a joke about it even if we understood. The book of Revelation tells us that at a certain point, well, God's wrath is beginning to be revealed, that there was going to be silence in heaven for a half an hour before those final things were going to happen. And then at the great white throne judgment, at the time of him pouring out his final wrath on sin, where he brings all the wicked dead out of their, their places of torment, Hades and wherever they are, bringing them before the great white throne judgment, and they're judged for everything they've done, and they're cast into the lake of fire. The Bible actually says that when God, when it's Jesus, by the way, who's going to be doing this, is sitting on the throne, all of earth and heaven and sky flees away. They don't want to be anywhere near God at this time because of the wrath. Of God. But he gives more grace. But he gives grace to who? To the humble. Now there's something here for us. Don't hear this message is only for the lost who need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God on a daily basis. We've entered into this grace in which we stand. But daily do we repel it? Do we resist it? By walking our own way. Let's go back to James chapter 4. James, remember, is writing to unbelievers and believers. And each of us should respond accordingly, determined by where we are in our condition with God. James 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When James calls his readers adulterous people, he's using language that the Jewish people would know full well. Remember, his audience is mostly Jewish. He's using language that the Jews would understand because all through the Old Testament, and I'm going to show you a couple of places, 
and also in the new, God calls them adulteresses because of their unfaithfulness, because anyone and anything that becomes more valuable to us than God, he considers that unfaithfulness because he wants to be our all. Go to Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my worlds in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels, holy angels. Again, listen to how Jesus describes this time period we're living in. An adulterous and sinful generation. Generation. Well, Jim, I don't think it's really that bad. Ooh. Be careful. Be careful. Go back to Hosea chapter 1. We were in Hosea 2 earlier. Go back to Hosea chapter 1. Look at verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So in this situation, because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, God has this prophet go marry himself a woman who's going to be unfaithful to him. And actually, she had children through other people, not Hosea. And when he named them, he named them not my people. Because they weren't even his. And God's telling Hosea, I want you to marry someone that's going to be unfaithful to you. As a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to me. Well, why, why would God see it as unfaithfulness? Well, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 13. Do you remember when we read in Hosea chapter 2 that when God brings Israel back, he's going to remarry her? He's going to betroth her to him forever? Well, because she had been unfaithful, he called her not my, not, you're not my, my wife anymore, and you can't call me your husband. He actually gave Israel a, a certificate of divorce. In Jeremiah 2, though, look at what he says in verses 1 through 13. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They didn't say, Where is the Lord, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, and land of desert and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priest didn't even say, where's the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. And the shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Keep reading. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend for the... Cross to the, for cross the coast to the, the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Keter and examine with care. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? 
But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heaven, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think God sees leaving him to put faith and trust in anything else. Pretty serious, doesn't he? He calls it unfaithfulness. Now, I want to encourage you with something, but I also want to caution you with something. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 3. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Folks, you do realize that we have already been betrothed. We're legally married to Jesus through faith in him. We become the bride of Christ, soon to be experiencing the wedding and the wedding feast that is going to follow. But folks, we have been devoted to Christ. But Satan wants to lead us away from a pure devotion. Yes, there are those who have not been saved. And God calls out to them and says, I want you to know me. But for those of us who do know him, who have been saved, we're in a wrestling match. We're in a battle. And the world and Satan and our own flesh are pulling against us at all times. And we need to be alert to this and aware of this. And we need to be understanding that God is ready, there, willing to give us grace in this battle and to give us victory in this tug against the pulls of the world. But we have to be willing to acknowledge it. We love to say we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That's true, but it's the through Jesus Christ part we've forgotten. We like to focus on we're more than conquerors, but we need Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, this is where the Holy Spirit needs to speak to each of us as to how in what ways we have gone astray. What have we turned to instead of him? 1 Corinthians 5, what things are we playing with at the same time that we worship God and he sees it as unfaithfulness? Go to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 9. He says it's actually reported, writing to the church in Corinth, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that it, excuse me, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and truth. He then goes on and says, I wrote with, to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to get out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here in this passage, Paul's writing to a church and they got people with, that are in serious sexual immorality and the church is acting like it's no big deal. God sees it as sin. He sees it as unfaithfulness. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 9 and following. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one, with, one spirit with him. Free, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let me ask you a question. Is God writing this to the church or to the world? It's written to the church and the world, but this was written to the Christians in the church in Corinth. Yes, these truths apply to the world. They need to know these truths. But it was really written to the church. And there were people in the church that thought sexual sin wasn't sexual sin. Why? They had gotten so comfortable being an adulteress, they didn't even see it as adultery. But God does. Folks, at the very beginning of the nation of Israel, we read about Achan and his family. God reminded the people of Israel, sin is still sin. And I'm still a holy God. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to pass over former sins to show my grace and my forbearance. But I'm also going to deal with sin so that you know that I'm the one who deals with sin, as we just read in Romans. And he dealt with it by having his own son put to death. So I think God sees sin pretty serious if he'd have his own son put to death. But what do we do? We fall prey to the lies of the enemy that say, well, it's really not that bad. Folks, we've been forgiven, and thank God for those of us who are in Christ. He will never leave us and divorce us like he did the nation of Israel and going to remarry them. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But it affects our relationship with him and our fellowship with him when we walk in disobedience. And he grieves jealously over the spirit that he has caused to live within us. Now, you're not going to find that quote anywhere in the Old Testament. It's actually a compilation of many passages of Scripture. But that spirit that he has caused to live within us is small s in your Bibles, you'll notice. He's talking about the spirit that he's given us. That's a part of us that connects with him. 
He wants that part of us. He wants our spirit. He wants our soul. He wants our whole body to be devoted to him. And that's why he wants to sanctify us body, soul, and spirit. He wants us to be devoted fully to him. We've been betrothed to him. But folks, if we're honest with ourselves, Jim Johnson included, many of us have fallen prey to thinking that certain things, well, we're forgiven. Certain things aren't that big of a deal. And as I've been having God show me over the last month, he's purifying his bride right now, folks, and getting us ready for his return. And he's wanting to clean out the leaven that has gotten into our churches and gotten into our lives so that we may serve him as we truly are, unleavened. But maybe your struggle isn't sexual sin. And by the way, I didn't even go down that whole road of what's going on in our churches today when it comes to sexual sin and homosexuality and transgenderism and all that stuff. But the church, there are even churches today that are teaching that it's not a sin. Go read the letters to the churches in Revelation and see that God sees it seriously. But maybe your struggle isn't sexual sin. Well, so Jim, I, I don't have any trouble with sexual sin. Well, good. But that doesn't mean that you're not an adulteress. Maybe you're, the world's pull on you is monetary. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Listen closely to what he's saying. If your heart is toward the things of the world when it comes to money and your confidence and your provision and your mind is your bank account or your retirement account and that's what's going to take care of you, you can't serve God. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I serve the Lord. Well, if your heart is actually toward your bank account more than it is God, he sees it as adultery. And as much as you may fool yourself, you're not serving both. You ever notice that God promised Abraham Isaac? He's the one who said, I'm going to bless you with this miracle child. And through this miracle child, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then God later on comes and says, now I want you to kill him. And what does God say at the end when Abraham is faithful and willing to kill his own son? He raises the knife and God stops him. And God says, now I know. Now I know that you love me. Wait a minute, God knows everything. Yes, but folks, there are going to be many times in our lives that God puts us to a test. We talk about serving God and loving God and depending on God. But he's going to put some, us to some tests to find out what he already knows and what we need to know. You've heard me say over the years, my wife and I and our kids, we've learned this phrase, it's only money. And we've had to learn that phrase so that it didn't have any pull on us. It's just a tool. And when you don't see it as worth anything, it's just money. You can give it away because it's just money. 
And you don't worry about it. But let me tell you, we've had to remind ourselves of that over and over and over because every now and then another test will come and God says, do you still think it's only money? And we had to be faithful again. And he'll renew that test. Go to 1 Timothy 6. There's something about this passage that I've preached on for years that God has opened my eyes to that I never looked at in this way. I can't wait to show it to you. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Hang on for a second. There are going to be those who teach that godliness is a means of increasing your wealth. Correct? By the way, has anybody ever heard of those kind of preachers? Listen, if they are teaching that godliness is a means to increase your wealth, what are they wanting you to focus on? Wealth. That becomes your God. Actually, we walk in godliness because our true God has said this is the best way for us. Whether we get rich off of it or not, whether he blesses it or not, he's already promised he'll make whatever we do prosper. But what we do is when we focus on being obedient or doing these things, because if I do it, then God will pay my house off. Or if I do this, then I'll win the lottery. Or if I do this, then our focus and our worship becomes set on the money and the things instead of him. Look at verses 17 through 19 in chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. Where are those who are wealthy to put their focus on? On God, not on their wealth. And one of the ways you can keep yourself from putting it on your wealth is give it away. There's a lot of us that think that God is our provision, but that he can't do it unless we have a big bank account. God calls this, or James calls this temptation, God through James calls this temptation from being fully devoted to Christ, being a friend of the world. But those of us who have been crucified with Christ should see ourselves as dead to the world. You really need to do this. This will help you. The Bible is very clear that we should see ourselves as dead to the world. Go to Galatians chapter 6. And by the way, as you're turning there, we all worry about what other people think. That's a part of that wanting to please the world. We worry about whether or not what we are wearing is going to be accepted by the popular people. We worry about, I remember as a kid, dreaming of the day when I could get a real haircut. Not one that was done by my mom or one that was at the barber shop that I didn't like. But actually, I dreamed of the day that I could go to the salon. Because you remember the salon? It was the place where they, you would go and they'd give you the feathered cut, which you could flip it back with the comb and flip it, part it down the middle, and this is back when I had something to work with. And uh, you could, 
I was so interested in getting my hair just right because I couldn't get a girlfriend and nobody would look twice at me. Whenever a girl looked twice at me, I'd always check my zipper. And so I, I, I wanted to have the world think I was cool. And so I saved my money up and I went to a salon and I got one of those feathered hairstyles. I remember going to school that first day thinking, now I'm going to be accepted and they're going to think I'm cool and it didn't do a thing. I used to carry, when I played basketball in high school, we used to have the high socks all the way up to the knee. I carried a comb in my sock so that at timeouts, we'd run over to the coach, and while the coach was giving us instructions, I'd pull the comb out and fix my hair and then put it back in my sock because I knew that if I would have the hairstyle of the world, they would accept me or the clothes. Go to Galatians 6. Look at verse 14. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You all know 2.20, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. By the way, let me say this to you real quick. Would you not agree that we're to be dead to the world? So if we just make up our mind tonight that we're dead to the world, we're all good? I hope you don't get this one wrong. No, that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we have to daily lay our flesh on the altar as a living sacrifice. Daily, we have to remind ourselves because we're in this battle. You know what? You might have victory in a certain situation where you're not worried about what people think. That doesn't mean you're done with that. You might have a, a victory in an area when it comes to sexual temptation. That doesn't mean you're done with that. You might have a victory in an area when it comes to financial temptation, but that doesn't mean you're done with that. We live in a world when those tests will continue, and it's an opportunity for us to say no to the flesh and yes to Jesus. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Keep this in mind, written to Christians. If then you have been raised with Christ, verses 1 through 10, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now in Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked but you, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, written to Christians, but we have to daily choose to walk in the spirit versus walk in the flesh. And when we walk in the flesh, God sees it as what? Adultery. He sees it as unfaithfulness. We become a friend of the world and an enemy of God. By the way, this would be a great way for you to confirm your salvation. Again, remember, he's writing to those who were saved and those who weren't saved. And it's not for us to determine for everybody else, but let the Spirit of God show us where we are. One of the ways you'll know that you're really saved 
is that when you do fall prey to the temptations of the world, which we all still do, how do you feel? Do you feel like it's no big deal? Or do you hate it? Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Being tempted by the world is not the same thing as loving the world. We're all tempted. But when you fall to that temptation, do you feel like, well, it's not that big of a deal? Well, you might want to check, see if, the world's, if Christ is in you, if the world, things of the world don't make you sick when you do them. Go to Ephesians 5. Look at verses 1 and following. Again, written to Christians. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled, or be being filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Has anybody caught this yet? That much, if not all of the New Testament writings to the Christians were how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. The reminder that we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live in the life we live. We live by faith in God. The teaching of the writers of the, of the, of the New Testament to the church was. You're in a battle now. You're a new person. Live in that new way. But your mindset is going to be having to be surrendering it to the Lord on a daily basis. 
You're going to have to renew your mind. You're going to have to spend time in the word, allow the spirit of God. And so that's why. How do we defeat the devil? We submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Set your minds on things above. I'm not going to have you go there, but if you want to look at it later on, 1 Corinthians 5, sorry, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24 starts with this. So Paul says, I say, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Too many of us have tried to fight Satan by saying, no, all right, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. No, the Bible actually says we put our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, I'm tempted right now. Jesus, my flesh wants to do something that I'm not supposed to do. My flesh wants to test, trust in something I'm not supposed to trust in. Lord, my eyes are on you. Lord, I need you. God, help me at this time. And when all of a sudden you take your, turn your back to what it is that's tempting you and you put them on the Lord, Satan leaves. Why does he leave? I think the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verse 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Oh, but just because he's in you doesn't mean that you're going to win every battle because he only gives his grace to who? The humble, the ones who ask for it. You know, he loved you so much, he let you choose whether or not you were going to receive him as, his, as your Savior. Oh, and he loves you still, and he won't force you to walk in the Spirit. That's a daily choice we get to make. But we get an opportunity to tell him how much we love him. Folks, no matter our true spiritual condition, saved or lost, hopefully we would all agree that we need help. And I put in my notes this. And if you don't think you need help, I can't help you. And neither will God. And neither will God. God's grace and his mercy is available to everyone, but only the ones who are willing to admit their need of it will receive it. Go to Luke 18. Look at verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. By the way, did you notice where the Pharisees' confidence was? Did anybody catch it? I, what he was doing. I do this. I do that. His confidence was in himself and what he did. But the other one said, God, I, I need you. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one that God responds to. Oh, by the way, God gives grace to the humble. Did you all catch what God does to the proud? He opposes them. He doesn't just say, sorry, no grace. He's actually going to work against you. Do you really want to go down that road? I think Paul was told it's hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to kick against the goads. God came to Paul and said, you can fight me if you want, but it won't be fun. In Matthew chapter 5, we're not going to turn there. Jesus in the parable 
or, or the, the Sermon on the Mount in verses 1 through 6. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. By the way, hopefully you've come to realize everyone apart from Christ is spiritually bankrupt. There's no one righteous, not even one. We're all spiritually dead and have to be brought from death to life by faith in God's provision for our sins through Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit and blessed are those who, what's that next one? Mourn. Blessed are those who grieve over their spiritual condition. Actually, blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that what we read in the book of James here? Didn't James say the same thing? He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Blessed, and then he says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. By the way, you're not going to hunger and thirst for something you don't think you need. By the way, all night tonight, I've been noticing that my throat's a little dry. And I have my 44-ounce soda on the other side of the camera. And I have been wanting it. We're almost done. And one of the first things I'm going to do is go straight there. You know why? My body knows I need a drink from there. At the same time, you won't hunger and thirst for something unless you know you need it. Do you need righteousness? Well, Jim, I've been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you have. But are you living righteously? Because I want you to see something. Go to Titus chapter 2 with me real quick. Titus chapter 2, look at verses 11 and following. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave, him, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Yes, you're declared righteous. Yes, you're justified just as if you'd never sinned. Yes, because of Jesus, you are going to heaven for eternity. But if that's all that God wanted to do was just save you and then mark you for heaven, why are we still here? Because he's still in the process of conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And His grace has appeared to train us how to live these lives of saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. And many of us spend too many years beating ourselves up as a Christian, even though we're saved, but falling to sin and then trying harder and trying harder. But God is using this to show you your need of Him on a daily basis. My prayer is that all of us, myself included, would wake up every morning and our first thought be, I need you, Lord, today. Thank you for my salvation, but I don't know what's going to happen, but you do. You know my plans, and you tell me to make plans, but to hold them loosely because you direct my steps. But Lord, I can tell you this much, apart from you living through me today, I won't let people see you even though you're here. So my eyes are on you. You don't get up and say, I'm going to fight Satan today. Good luck with that. You're not going to win. But if you get up and you put your eyes on the Lord and you spend some time in the word and you allow him to speak to you through his word, you spend some time in prayer. Maybe you grab yourself an old hymn book and sing a couple of hymns. However it is, each day, let the Lord lead you on how he would have you put your eyes on him. In the story in Luke 15, we're not going to turn there because of time. In the story of Luke 15, we see this story of what we, our Bibles call the prodigal son. I love to call it 
the story of the loving father, because he's really the main character. But the son says to the father, you're as good as dead to me. I don't want to wait until you die. I want my inheritance now. The father lets him. He goes off and he spends his money living what he thought would make him happy. And he realized it doesn't. And he comes to himself. And he decides he's going to go back and humble himself and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he makes his way back. The father, who's gracious and wanting to welcome him and gather him as a mother hen gathers her chicks, sees him and runs to him. By the way, the only time in the Bible you see Jesus run. He runs to him. And the son starts his speech. He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father says, hey, 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 let's throw a party. Let's throw a robe on him. Let's put shoes on his feet, ring on his finger. He was dead, but now he's alive. Let me ask you a question. Um, is this story telling a story about a lost person getting saved? Or a born-again person who went away and came back? Yes. The answer is yes. Remember, the whole of Scripture tells us that this is who God is. If we humble ourselves, he says to the church in Sardis, he said, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains. He's writing to a church that has walked away. But he says... Come to your senses. Come on back. If you're lost, Jesus says to you, my grace is sufficient, but you have to acknowledge your need. I want to save you right now. If there's someone out there listening right now, if the Spirit of God's drawing you, I'll pray that you just give your life to Jesus. Contact us and let us know. We'd love to hear about how God saved you. But Christians, if you're out there and if there's people here and you've kind of been a little unfaithful, Come back. Daily say, Lord, thank you for my salvation, but I need a foot washing right now. And he will willingly and lovingly give you grace. If you just humble yourself and say, I need you. I love you guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.